tonight, our Christmas Eve service, I want to share with you the insignificance of Christmas. I use that word and people look kind of strangely and they look somewhat skeptically. But I want to begin tonight with a little story. It's an adapted story. I first read a poem probably 20 years ago and sat down to rewrite it. And It's the tale of the innkeeper because the Christmas story is filled with all kinds of things that we would look at and go, well, there's really nothing very significant about that. And yet it's the most amazing story that's ever been told. The coming of Jesus, the most precious gift that's ever been given to mankind. And yet filled with normality. With simple things and simple places, simple people. Luke chapter 2 records the beginning of our time tonight. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And so all went to be registered, everyone, to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was while they were there that the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Would you pray with me? Tonight, Lord Jesus, we honor you. This service is about you. You being Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, your creation that you came to this earth to minister to. Lord, that you would descend from heaven to this earth to be born in a manger is beyond our imagining. And so, God, we ask now that you would take this time this amazing Christmas Eve, this gathering of your church. And God, would you speak to us? Remind us of the wonder again of Christmas. Help us to hear your voice. Lord, help us to fall more deeply in love with you. We ask all these things in the blessed name of our Savior and our King Jesus. Amen. Christmas in Bethlehem from the perspective of the innkeeper. The tale, if you will, of the innkeeper. There was a cold wind blowing that night, and so I put on both my cloak and my tunic. And some think I'm some kind of money-grubbing, cruel man, heartless, mean-spirited, maybe even a, a slumlord looking out to make a buck off of travelers' misfortunes. It just goes to show how much gossip happens here in Bethlehem. They don't even know me. How dare they? 
They're wrong, just plain wrong. It's time to set the record straight. Once and for all. People say I'm an innkeeper, but that's not really true. I run more of a a bed and breakfast kind of operation. I suppose you could call it an inn if that makes you happy. Uh, But to us, it's really just a big house. My grandfather, Joshua Ben David, built it back when the caravan trading business was at its peak. And the caravans used to stop by on their way to the coast. And they would come in and water their animals and grab a few supplies. After that rough trip from the Jordan Valley, they found it a comfortable place to stop. Gramps built it big enough for all 14 of us kids. Well, a few years ago, my wife and I, Rachel, were just kind of rattling around in this big old house. Our kids are grown and on their own, and what that means is they moved in with us. We were thinking maybe we could take in a few travelers to help offset the 25 mouths we now have to feed. Rachel's always been good in the kitchen, so we just simply let the word out that we'd take people in, and they started to come. Every night we'd have a person, maybe two, sometimes more, and sometimes they'd give us a denarius or two, perhaps a chicken, some cheese, some spice from a far-off land. And people would always come back every time they came into town intent on getting another bowl of Rachel's famous lamb stew. And the whole operation really was more about making ends meet than it was about getting rich. And then came that insane, crazy census that Roman governor Quirinius thought up. It was taxation without representation, I tell you. Pure and simple. People from all over the province flooded into town that week, and we had more folks in Bethlehem than there are sheep. And that's saying something, because we have a lot of sheep. Being as the late, great King David was born just over that rise, seems like everybody thinks they were born in Bethlehem. We even gave it a name. We called it the taxation station fixation of 80-0. Filled us up. House was completely full that night. Can't even remember how many camels I saw with a sign on the back end saying Bethlehem or bust. Rachel and I just slept in the main room where we always do. We started putting guests in the other three rooms and they kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. Then we doubled them up. We put two, three families in one room, and they kept coming. And finally, we'd filled up the main room with six families, plus Rachel and me. We started turning people away. I must have gotten in and out of bed ten times that night, stumbling over bodies. Got to the door. I kicked this one poor guy in the head, but he was so surprised he actually thanked me. Finally, at two in the morning, I just had to say, look, there's no more room. I'm sorry, folks. The the people are like carpet. They're thick. There's no more room. Come back in the morning. Maybe we'll have some space. They'd butter something and take their party back outside and sleep somewhere next to the house under the shelter of a blanket. I just couldn't make any more room. It's the honest truth. I... Blame the governor if you want to blame somebody. We just made the best out of a situation that came our way. But I do remember one more couple that night 
Joseph was a burly man, big arms, strong hands. He said he was from Nazareth, I believe. And he wouldn't take no for an answer. I would say to him, I'm sorry. And then he'd tell me this story about his tiny little Mary. And then I saw his tiny little Mary. She was as big as a house. She was about as pregnant as a woman can get. We had a goat that looked like that one time, gave birth to 12 kids. And while Joseph was pleading and begging, I saw her grab her tummy in pain, and I knew I couldn't let her have that baby outside in the cold, in the wind, and in the sleet. I looked at him. I said, okay, okay, okay. To the barn you go. Now, the barn to us was really a cave attached to the house because we used to keep our animals indoors so no one would steal them. So it wasn't really outside, but it wasn't really inside. But you know, when you're begging, you can't be a chooser. I just told him, I said, it's all I've got. It'll just have to do. I led them and their donkey out back, and I had to tell you, it was pretty crowded, so I shoot a couple of animals outside to make room for them in one dry corner. And Joseph looked over and said to me, Sir, I'm, I'm really grateful. And then with a very, very serious look, he asked me, do you know where I can find a midwife in these parts? We might need her tomorrow, maybe the next day. And I looked at him and I shook my head and thought to myself, he knows nothing about babies because he's not going to make it through the night. I finally told him, I said, I think you're about five minutes from being a daddy. And so I ran down to my Aunt Sarah's house and pounded on the door until her husband came. One of the travelers, I said, is having a baby. You need to get down there quick. I'll wait while Aunt Sarah gets dressed. And I stop just for a moment to catch my breath and tell her to hurry because that baby's due in minutes, not hours or days. By the time we got back to the barn, Joseph said little Mary had settled into some soft hay She'd gotten wrapped up in a blanket and was wiping the perspiration off her brow. And she was speaking softly as she fought off those waves of pain. And Sarah sent me out to get my Rachel and then pushed me and Joseph out of the barn and said, This is no place for men. So we waited outside in the shelter of the outside area of the barn for it seemed like hours. But my guess it was really 20 minutes. You know, when your best friend's wife is screaming at the top of her lungs, I'd rather just die. I mean, minutes always seem like hours. Well, and then we hear that healthy little cry, and all of a sudden, Sarah hollers out to me, you've got a baby boy. Aunt Sarah was saying, oh, how beautiful he is. As we peeped around the corner, she hands off the young one to Rachel, and she wraps it up in those swaddling bands she had saved. Sure was a cute little thing, I'll tell you. Well, Joseph goes over to Mary and gives her a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. And then Rachel hands Mary the baby and comes over to me and takes my hand and says, Remember when our Joshua was born? She whispered. The lantern was almost blown out from the wind ripping through the rocks. and The cattle were lowing softly and baby Jesus was asleep in her mother's arms. That's how I left him as I walked Aunt Sarah home. 
A chilly wind. The sleet had finally stopped, but it was cold, bone cold. By the time I got back, Rachel was in bed, and I was about to get ready to put out the light and step over some more bodies and try and get somewhere nearer underneath those covers. And I heard some murmuring out in the barn. thought to myself, I better check. And I peeped in, and I saw shepherds. Shepherds. Raggedy, smelly old shepherds kneeling down on that filthy barn floor as if they were praying. And the oldest one saying something to Joseph about angels and prophets and Messiah. Shepherds are known when it's a little cold to have a little bit more wine than they should have. And it was cold out. Wasn't sure if they were hallucinating, fabricating, or revelating. The rest of them just knelt there with their heads bowed and some tears running down their faces. And I coughed out loud and Joseph looked up. I was almost ready to run those thieving shepherds off and Joseph just motioned with his hand. He said, it's okay. They've come to see the Christ baby. And I looked at him. And I said, not you too. The Christ bit. You mean the one the prophets had spoke about? And he said, yes, the very one. Daniel, Isaiah, Malachi, Zechariah, all of them. They'd all been speaking about this child. He went on to say it was just as Isaiah had said 700 years earlier. And he even looked at me and he says, this is Emmanuel. This is the child that was born. This is the son that was given. This is the virgin-born son of God that Isaiah spoke about. I know it sounds crazy, but this baby's not mine, nor is it any other man's. My wife has been faithful to me, and yet she gave birth tonight. And that was when I knelt down too with the shepherds. And I watched and I prayed and I listened to that old shepherd recount his story of angels and heavenly glory and the sign of that holy baby wrapped in swaddling bands that would be found in the manger. And I'm here to tell you that was my manger. That was my straw. He was born near my lamp. It was my wife, Rachel, who actually assisted with the birth. The shepherds left after a while, and some of them leaned over and kissed the sleeping Christ child before they departed. I did too. Honestly, I'll always be glad I made room for one more family that night. You see, I'm not actually some mean, money-hungry innkeeper as some folks have said. I was there. I saw him. You know, years later, that boy came back to Bethlehem telling everybody about his kingdom. I believe him, I tell you. I was there. I kissed his little head. I heard his father's own words. And mark my words. 
you'd seen what I'd seen. You'd be a believer in that babe in a manger as well. And you would know that he's God's son. You see, the Christmas story is filled with insignificant things. We sometimes want to focus in on the glorious, wondrous things that happened that night. But tonight I want to focus in on the insignificant things. The things that maybe we miss at times in the Christmas story. You see that virgin-born son of God. That, that word that became flesh. That son that God gave to us, to mankind, that first Christmas night. It's the greatest gift that mankind's ever received. But he didn't come in glory. He didn't come in splendor. He didn't come in heavenly raiment. He came as a tiny baby born in a manger. You see, the story of Jesus is filled with all kinds of things that are quite extravagant. You think about it, there's political intrigue and there's all these conflicts that are going on and there's heavenly intervention and angels and strange astronomical events and this amazing anticipation, the drama of a delivery room, the strange traveling royalty, the magi. There was fear and amazement. There were angels singing. But there was also very insignificant events that remind us of how much the Lord loves us. And it begins with some insignificant places. And it's interesting, our viewpoint from outside of that story, as God fills the seemingly insignificant story with his very own glorious son. The happening places of the world at that time would have been Rome or Persia, maybe Syria. And the people who ruled others lived nowhere near this region of the earth. This was a forgotten way station on the way to nowhere. It was an insignificant place and no one cared about this little tiny region of the world called Palestine. It was not too far from the Mediterranean Sea. But it really had no reason for anyone to actually want to live there. It was largely barren. And perhaps tonight you feel like where you're at, where you live, is an insignificant place. God loves insignificant places. And he's just as present in insignificant places as he is in the halls of Congress or the White House or Parliament. Our story focuses on little places, tiny places, insignificant places like Bethlehem. The name simply means house of bread, but it was largely known at that time for raising sheep, the sheep that were often slaughtered in the temple. And so it really wasn't a place, it'd be some place like we would Think of maybe in the Central Valley, known for farming. It was kind of a, a, a down-on-the-farm kind of event. Mary and Joseph from a little tiny town called Nazareth. 
And Nazareth, too, was out of the way. It wasn't on the way to anywhere. It was a little tiny mountain valley that sits above the Sea of Galilee. If you travel to Nazareth today, there's a, there's a city. It's tucked away in a little tiny pocket, a little valley, if you will. You can hardly even see it from the main road that goes around through the Jordan Valley. And from that insignificant city was an insignificant carpenter. He probably didn't have his own website. I'm sure his shop wasn't huge. There was no brand name that you would recognize that this chair was from Joseph's carpentry shop. His life, their lives as a couple, also insignificant. There was certainly an insignificant manger. When you think about it, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Great I Am, God incarnate in human flesh, God's only Son, the first place He touched down on earth was a feed trough. Pretty insignificant. Probably some cow had been chewing hay out of it earlier in the day. And the very place where this inn was, was nothing more than a farmer's field. You see, when Emmanuel comes near, all of the little places become big. Don't forget that. Because your little place, my little place, our little places, the the things that we do every day, the place that we are, very often seems insignificant in this great big world. But God has not misplaced one of you. And he sees where you are. And he is near. The story continues on and it contains some very insignificant people. This young, poor couple from Nazareth. Mary and Joseph. You see, not only does God care about insignificant places, but he cares about seemingly insignificant people. Jesus, though born into the royal family of David, they were anything but a family of privilege. They were a hard-working, blue-collar, Absolutely seven-day-a-week, work-week family. They worked hard, and they had very little to show for it. And maybe tonight you're wondering what God thinks about you. God loves insignificant people. Because he loves all of us. Matter of fact, Scripture reminds us that he's not even a respecter of persons. He loves us all so much that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, that young, poor couple lived almost 60 miles north, but they had to travel to Bethlehem, the city of Joseph's birth, because that's what you did when you paid taxes, and there'd be a Roman representative there that would collect those taxes and your name would be checked off a list and they'd, they'd mark it against. You, you see, even then, people were a number. 
Sometimes we wonder if that's all we've been reduced to. But times haven't changed all that much. You see, Micah had spoken of that city in the fifth chapter of his wonderful little book. And it says there in verse 2 of Micah, Could you, Bethlehem of Apathra, Though you are a little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old and from everlasting. Remember that Jesus Christ was also creator God. And so when he came to this earth as Emmanuel to be named Jesus, he was still fully God. And yet he came to a very insignificant place to be born to insignificant parents. Luke correctly records for us that Mary and Joseph had been pledged, betrothed to one another, but in Hebrew society that meant they were actually married. They spent time, usually a year or so, living together, even setting up home. And so the only thing that they abstained from was the marital relationship. And so for Mary to be pregnant, terrible, terrible blight. Maybe there's been a terrible blight in your life which makes you seem to other people even more insignificant than you already think you might be. But that's not how God sees you. God sees you as so valuable that he sent his only son to this world to die for you. He gave you the most prized thing he could his own son you see our traditional nativity scenes kind of picture like the one we have in our own foyer kind of put out in a a barn by an insensitive or at least an over zealous landlord that's really not the picture but they didn't have a Hampton Inn. There was no extended stay America. They, they were not at the Marriott. It really was likely a cave. And it was cold. We don't often think of it because when we think of the Middle East, we think of desert. Do a little simple Google search. Sometime you'll find out it snows in Jerusalem fairly regularly. Bethlehem's just 10 miles south. He would be there in a manger. You see, there's all kinds of things, places that you could say, wow, if I was God, I don't think I'd send my son to a feed trough. There was no announcement of the place. There was no news media at the time. You know, Channel 7 didn't send the eyewitness news crew to record the event. There was no blog about it on the internet. There was just the word of mouth from some grimy shepherds who normally nobody trusted. Matter of fact, when shepherds got involved, most people got uninvolved. They were outcasts. It was one of the lowliest occupations that someone could have at the time. And you see... From our perspective, maybe we're tempted to think, 
No one really cares. And God cares. And God loves you with an endless love, an everlasting love, an undying love. And he wants to use you too. He wants to use us. It's interesting that he'd be born in a place that when you think about it, this group of men that would herd these shepherds in the hills of Bethlehem, a vast majority of those sheep that they were raising were actually destined for the temple. There a place recorded in scripture as the tower of the flock existed and it was a place, really a watchtower to where someone could man and look over the fields and as they looked over the fields they could spot the lions, they could spot the bears, they could spot those who might steal the sheep. But the whole purpose of those shepherds was to watch over animals that would one day die. I don't think that that's a coincidence. In John's gospel, the first chapter, the 29th verse, Jesus approaching John the Baptist as he's coming towards him, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John wasn't exactly a significant guy either. And in fact, when we meet him, we kind of find him wearing crazy camel hair clothes and eating locusts and wild honey people would have thought he you know man God's not going to say anything through that guy God loves insignificant things and just like the innkeeper in our story tonight he's not even really mentioned by name we don't know who he was we don't know what he did we know very little about him and yet because there was no room in that inn we can imagine in our minds exactly what scripture records that Jesus would be of such character that the average person would just not even notice who he was he didn't come with pomp and circumstance didn't come with a heavenly host Jesus didn't show up with an entourage when Emmanuel comes near all of the little people suddenly seem to matter. You see, the Christmas story is filled with these wonderful, insignificant things. And finally, the third piece to this wonderful, insignificant story, some insignificant events You see, the things that make news in our world would be some new law about taxes. Amen? It was the same then. That was the newsworthy event. The birth of a child is not a newsworthy event. If the newspapers were to record that, if the internet were to record all of the births that happened every day, they would spend all day, every day, and every page of every newspaper would be nothing but births of babies. So God even uses an insignificant event, something that happens hundreds of thousands of times 
every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year, somewhere on this earth, babies being born this very second. That makes it a fairly insignificant event when it happens that often. But it was anything but from a heavenly perspective. When you think about it, God used something like that to draw attention to the fact that he sent Jesus for all of us. Not for some elite religious class. One of the great problems that mankind has is we think we need to earn the approval of the Savior. Brothers and sisters, family of God, fellow sojourners on a, on a Christmas journey these next couple of days, you can't earn God's favor. It's impossible. But because Christ came as a baby, you have God's favor by faith. He gives you grace. Hallelujah. You see, the Bethlehem paper would have read, you know, something along these lines, baby born to Mary and Joseph, yay. Would have been on the back page somewhere. Wasn't a normal delivery, of course, anything but. And in fact, the tidbits and pieces, there were hundreds of prophetic little pieces that we'd gotten a glimpse of through the Old Testament prophets. That's why scripture in the New Testament records the fact that the prophets had recorded those things because they had. And praise God now, thanks to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Every last one of those prophetic windows we now have copies of that were written well before the events happened. Verifying that God said what he meant, meant what he said. That's the wisdom of God. He takes the insignificant to do the most glorious thing that's ever happened in the history of mankind. There is no event that's greater. In fact, until academia began to mess with it, your calendar was divided into two periods of time. The first, before Christ. The second, the year of our Lord. So monumental was that event that it actually marked the beginning of a different period of time in the history of mankind. We still believe that that babe in a manger is the son of God. Paul, as you would write to the church at Corinth in the first chapter there in the 25th verse, and says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, if man had come up with a plan to bring Jesus into this world, it would have included some incredible events, monumental events, anything but insignificant events. There would have been laser light shows and 
There would have been blogs and television production crews. There would have been thousands of reporters, people gathered from around the world, helicopters hovering. Can you imagine if it happened today? Helicopters just hovering over over the manger. This is Bob Johnson. We're covering the birth of Jesus live. You know, that it would have been crazy. And yet the whole thing passed without anybody really even knowing about it, save a few people who had actually dared to believe by faith that the prophecies were true. You see, that's how the story of our Savior began. Insignificant places, insignificant people, insignificant events that changed our world. Christmas really announces to all of us, it announces to you, and maybe you're visiting, maybe you came with friends, maybe you came with family. Don't let that insignificance cause you to miss the significance of what God was saying. You matter. And God loves you. And he sent Jesus into this world that through him, through that babe in a manger, the world might be saved. The book of Hebrews even goes so far as to say about Jesus that he shared in our humanity. And this all that Jesus did, everything that Jesus did, all the insignificant things. Jesus didn't have a car. He walked wherever he went. Except for a couple of times when he rode on a donkey. Oh, that's a step up. Jesus didn't eat at the finest restaurants. He had no place to lay his head. He refused to carry money. He actually gleaned in the fields. He walked through the fields with his disciples just picking up what was left over after everybody else got what they needed. He did that so that one day we could appreciate his royalty. He's the king of the universe. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the great I am. And he is coming again. And so as we celebrate Christmas tomorrow, as we celebrate the glory of what he did coming so simply that all of us could identify with him, remember that he did so so that we wouldn't miss his majesty. That we wouldn't miss his forgiveness. That we wouldn't miss what he did on Calvary's cross. Insignificant people, places, and events were all so that Jesus could remind you, remind me,
that every last person matters to the king. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? I want to pray with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. (laughs) Had it been our plan, surely, surely we would have messed it up. But your plan was that our majestic Savior, our glorious King, the amazing Creator God, who fashioned the heavens and the earth, would come to this planet and be born to an insignificant couple in an insignificant place through a very insignificant event so that we might be able to have your magnificence. God, we love you. And we thank you for the birth of Jesus, which we celebrate. Jesus, we honor you. And truly you are the reason for this season. There is no other reason for Christmas. The greatest gifts that could ever been given have already been given to us. Jesus, it was your life for ours. We bless your holy name. We thank you, Lord, for the goodness that you poured out upon us. As we celebrate with friends, with family, Lord, as we go to our homes tonight, as we put our head down on our pillows, Lord, we praise you that you're the God of the common man, that your love is open to all, that no one is outside of your grace. No one can earn that grace. And you came as a babe in a manger to prove it. We thank you. We praise you. We bless you. And God's people all said, Amen. Amen. Amen.